Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day, space junkies, and welcome to the Space Junk Pod. I'm your host, Annie Hanma, and today's guest is V Tran, a space medicine student at Adelaide University. V's Honours Project analyzes data from the Artificial Gravity Bed Rest Study at the European Space Agency, with a focus on the gluteal muscles. So in essence, V studies what might happen to butts in space, which makes this episode, recorded over Zoom, a literal bougie call. Nothing since the history of the Space Junk podcast has been more perfect. Outside of her research, V has worked with the Flying Doctor Service in Broome, Western Australia, and enjoys long distance running. Our discussion delves into philosophy and how she thinks about finding duty and purpose while pursuing an unconventional career path. Please enjoy the podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. G'day, Space Junkies. Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast, your favorite and least organized space podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Annie Hanma, and today I am speaking with the fabulous V Tran. V, how are you? Hello, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Oh, look, I'm great. Um, I've got my my space background up and B informed me that she actually has the same sheet purchased from Kmart for all of $7. So I can yeah. recommend that one. And uh, I saw online that occasionally you're referred to as a space, a space fashion icon. I like collecting space-related things and that can include clothing. So um, I guess I wear space clothing every now and again, but I wouldn't call myself an icon, but uh, thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Now let's talk about your actual research, um, which is absolutely fascinating. You are studying space medicine, which for a start, I think will probably be a surprise to a lot of people who are watching this or listening to this podcast, because space medicine is not something you hear about every day. I wonder, could you give us a quick introduction to what is this thing called space medicine? Right, so I'm studying a Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery at the University of Adelaide. And there's no degree in the whole of Australia that is labelled-based medicine. But I am taking a break from the medical degree straight to do a one-year honours degree um, within the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences. And that's an option that a lot of medical students choose to take before they graduate from their medical degree. And because I am so interested in this career and this field, then I decided to add a space sort of bent to it by seeking out a project that has some way, some relation to 
space medicine research and I was very lucky to 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 get a team who would be willing to take me on. Space medicine is essentially how we keep astronauts living and thriving and working in space for long duration periods and it's a really wonderful intersection between different disciplines I think. It's a very interdisciplinary um, field because it not only involves the medicine that we have to study for six years at university but eventually you have to learn a bit more about the science side and the engineering side of how the astronaut interacts with the spacecraft and how the spacecraft can help the astronaut. It's, it's kind of like um, if people study aviation you study human factors because there's a relationship between the human and the equipment around them. It's not just the human itself or it's not just the individual. It's also the people around them and the things around them. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, I'm not really an expert yet, but this particular topic of mine, I guess, um, I will hopefully be some sort of expert by the end of this year when I finish the degree. Absolutely. Look, I think it's always tough because um, when you're a person doing something that's a little bit different or a little bit interesting, people are very quick to say, oh, you're an expert on this thing. And, mm. you know, obviously it takes a lot of time to develop expertise, but nonetheless, yeah. Uh, you are the first person I've ever met who specifically studies butts in space. Um, mm. Now, this is a gross oversimplification of what you do, but I, I just, I couldn't help myself and I was quite fascinated and, and looking at what you're doing. It's very interesting. Tell me about the study you're working on for your honours project. Well, pretty happy to be on the Space Junk podcast because in a way I'm studying the junk of people who go to space. And so the study actually concluded in December last year and it involved getting 24 healthy participants from, um, from Europe, the only criteria being that they spoke German. And they put these 24 healthy participants in bed for 60 days. They weren't allowed to get up and they, they mainly had to be on their back. And they studied lots and lots of different physiological measurements um, on these 24 people. And my particular team was looking at the muscle loss and the muscle appearance on MRI, which is a type of scan. Some of these 24 people were, were put into a human-sized centrifuge. So what's a centrifuge? A centrifuge is made up of the words sentry and fuga. Sentry meaning the center and fugue meaning seeking. So if you studied physics in year 11 or year 12, then you'd know that anything in uniform circular motion involves the object accelerating towards the center. If they weren't accelerating towards the center, they'd, they'd sort of go off on a tangent, right? Like if you're spinning a, something on a string and you let go, it will go off in the way that it was traveling. I digress. Uh, the centrifuge is, um, it's a device that spins at a certain rate to generate a force on whatever's inside it. Some people working in, in the science lab might have used centrifuges for their, their samples, like blood samples, to, use, to help separate more massive parts of the blood from less massive parts of the blood. And so a human centrifuge, it's called a short arm centrifuge because it takes up less space than a long arm centrifuge. And you put the person in it lying down with feet on the outside and head on the inside. And when it spins, it spins at such a rate that it generates a 1G type of force on the level of the heart of the person. And that is meant to simulate earth gravity. So you've got some people laying in bed for the whole 60 days and you've got some people 
getting a daily 30 minute dose of centrifuge action at 1G. And so at the end of it, we want to see what bed rest does to the muscles as well as what the centrifugation does to the muscles and to see if maybe centrifugation can actually help slow down that rate of muscle loss that we're so concerned about. I try to like figure out how to how to frame this, but I, I guess what it boils down to then is how do we prepare human bodies or how do we take care of human bodies in places and situations and environments for which human bodies were not really evolved for? I mean, that's how we explore as humans, right? Um, that's how we were able to go to the, the highest mountains, the deepest oceans as humans, because not every animal, in fact, probably not any other animal has any sort of curiosity as much as the human does. And so to kind of make that curiosity and sense of exploration safe, then we have to step back and think, okay, how do we actually protect the person going into that extreme environment? Um, you've probably heard of stories about people going to Antarctica for the first time, trying to reach the South Pole, or the first people who tried to climb Mount Everest. Um, they were not all successful. <laughs> so it's really important that if we're spending lots and lots of money and time and effort on sending people into the most extreme environment, which is space, then we have to make sure they're safe and healthy and having a good quality of life as well, not just not just the absence of disease and malaise, but actually having a good life, a satisfactory and productive life. There's lots of ways that we do that at the moment. Um, only 12 people have been to the moon, so I'm not gonna count those people, but the, the rest of the astronauts have been sort of in low Earth orbit within 400 kilometers of the Earth's surface. And a majority have, of them have been on the ISS. So let's take the ISS for example. On there, Astronauts exercise for up to two and a half hours a day. They do both cardio to keep their heart and their circulation healthy, and they do strength as well to keep their muscles from atrophying or losing their mass. Because if you don't use it, you lose it, right? Yeah. So um, what happens is that the muscle either gets smaller or the fat from the body actually comes into the muscle cell and replaces the muscle cells. So your muscles actually get fattier too. And um, I guess that's a, probably a human evolution way of storing energy in times of starvation. But hopefully the astronauts don't starve so we don't have that in the modern age really. Um, aside from exercise, um, astronauts have to do a lot of training before they go up. So it's really about the selection process. What sort of traits of a human do you include and exclude when you find the astronauts that you're gonna send up? And then they train together for a couple of years, maybe around two years, so that they get used to each other. And so they work well as a team. Their, their teamwork is optimized and that means their own mental health is optimized. One of the things that I've really enjoyed studying as part of my own research is human activities in Antarctica and the ways that groups of individuals respond to being in extreme and extremely hostile environments. Um, and I suppose in my research, being more on the sociology side, I'm more looking at the ways that they think and the way that they work together and form little societies and norms of behavior mm. and so on together. But there's also that physical side. And I mean, I'm very curious as to, obviously you're looking at the physical effects on a muscle, but to what extent do you also consider the 
um, you, you know, you mentioned that it wasn't just about not having malaise, that it was about having proper well-being. So to what extent would you consider those uh, environmental and mental factors for people going into space as well and how that might play into their physical response. My study doesn't look at any factors outside of the gluteal muscle volume and fat infiltration but I, I absolutely agree that the mental health is very essential for the astronauts well-being and also the mission objectives because um, that's really quite important as well. Um, if I were to make a link to it, it would be to say that if we need to, if we need the astronaut to stay healthy, especially over a round trip mission to Mars, which could take three years, then we also need to make sure that their bodies are healthy. It's very much an interplay between physical and mental health of the individual. And so if their glute muscles are healthy, let's say, let's, let's just look at the glute muscles, then they when, they, when they get to Mars, they can stand better. They're not going to be so weak and atrophied and, and, and wasted away. They can stand so they can do better work and they have less of a risk of fractures. Now, if you get a fracture when you're on Mars, you can't really get much help. So that's going to cause such havoc for the mission and the individual and the team and the astronauts' mental health and physical health. Um, and so having a strong body that works well is so important to to everything within the space mission mm. um it's it's just one piece of the puzzle and obviously the the web is as strong as its weakest link so we have to make sure that everything is working well in in, in, in the system mental health um in terms of in general without without looking at my study itself then you can kind of split it into the individual's well-being and the team's well-being in terms of the individual well-being, we firstly we need to select in astronauts that are mentally sound and mentally healthy to start with. People who have a good sense of humour, for example, have been more likely to be selected. People who are able to deal with conflict, people who are resilient, and people who are have a good work ethic so that can inspire the people around them to continue to work. Mm. In terms of the team dynamics, that's also another thing. We, we don't really think about that as much on Earth, like to me, when we talk about mental health on Earth, we, we actually kind of isolate it to the individual, don't we? We talk about, okay, look after yourself, you know, um, uh, uh, do what you need to do to, 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 to stay well. But especially in work environments, perhaps if, if any of our listeners are, are at workplaces and stuff, there, there's a bit more of an emphasis on organisational health and, mm. and team dynamics. And I don't think it's any more important than in space where you're in a confined environment and you have no choice but to work with those people. So there's, there's lots of team building and team sort of um, team wellbeing activities that need to go on before these people can go to space together. And things like leadership and communication and, and living and working together in the same confined environment is just so important to everything that is involved in the mission. I think that that's really hit home for a lot of us during this COVID period of lockdown that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know that many people have found that their family or their housemates or whatever it is becomes their whole um, surrounds and their whole environment. And so I think many people listening to you talk about this will be feeling some resonance with their own experiences over the last few months or maybe, you know, heading into the next few months for some people. Let's talk about how you came to get involved in medicine and 
how you became interested in this really progressive and new area of medicine in particular. So I was actually really interested in space ever since I was about six years old, maybe even five, when I first looked up at the stars and looked at the moon through a telescope. I thought it was so amazing that there are things out there that we can't see with the naked eye. And I wanted to study that and kind of push the boundaries of human knowledge. And I had that dream for a long time. And then it got to around year 10 level where we had to do this program where we, we look at different career options that we want to choose and that, that will help inform our subject choices in year 11 and 12. And I found it very difficult to justify pursuing, a, unfortunately, pursuing a science degree in my home city, Adelaide. There was only one astronomy degree, astronomy or space science specific degree, but there were lots of voices um, around me, mainly from adults, telling me that I couldn't do it because there weren't enough jobs in Adelaide. And if I wanted to stay in Adelaide, then I would not really succeed. And it was a very hard decision, but eventually I, I got to a stage where I convinced myself that medicine might be something that I could give a go at. And if I had gotten into it, then I could, I could always sort of switch, switch over to something else if I needed to. So, Pretty much, I tell people that I did the medicine aptitude test, which is called the UMAT. I did that for fun, just to see how I went. And I got an okay score. And then next thing you know, I get an interview and I get an okay year 12 score. And then all of those factors come together and I'm doing medicine all of a sudden. And I justified that to myself because I actually wanted to expand my interpersonal skills. I wanted to get better at speaking to people and, 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 and having empathy for people and contributing positively to the society through helping solve medical problems for, for my patients. Mm. And so medicine really helped me develop my, my interpersonal skills as I'd hoped. However, during the first half of the medical degree, so about three years in, I realised that I didn't really have much of a passion for what I was doing in the classroom. We were learning cool things about the mechanisms behind the human body and how we could apply that to diseases and their management plans. But um, I felt that there was something more out there for me. And so fortunately, I took, I bit the bullet basically, and I went to a big Congress called the International Aeronautical Congress, which, which some of you all might know. And it was in Adelaide in 2017. And I attended as a young and wide-eyed student looking at all the amazing engineering and science related things that they were talking about. And I attended some of the, the medical streams as well at the Congress. And I met a few people, including the previous NASA administrator, Charlie Bolden, who said that if I were to pursue this strange and nebulous field called space medicine, then I could be an expert in my field because it's so new and, but it's so important if we are to move forward as a human species. And that I think really was the spark to doing all the things that I've done up to now from, from 2017. So I am, um, while doing my medical degree, I started to reach out to people in my hometown and across Australia. I started to go to more conferences and, and sort of be courageous enough to put myself in situations where there was already an established space community and kind of get to know people and learn from people who had perhaps been where I had. 
and that's what's taken me here today. I also have a very strong interest in STEM and, and, and helping the next generation sort of follow in all of our footsteps, but um, we can talk about that in a bit. It's so interesting what you say about having to find courage to put yourself in those situations and to reach out to the space community and so on. I think something that I found, and I really want to get your take on this, is that when you're, you know, somewhere in your 20s and trying to figure out what your career is going to be and so on, there's an uncertainty that comes up when you pursue something to do with space or something that's really forward thinking, that's mm -hmm. kind of at the, I guess, at the very edges of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I've found personally that it's taken a lot of courage at times for me to find purpose in the uncertainty and to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because in my case, for example, I don't really know what my career will look like because there's no job that I can just come out of my degree and slot straight into. Um, yep. But in this, at the same time that I find that hugely exciting and energizing. And it's one of the things I really love about what I'm doing, but you know, tell, tell me, how do you feel about that uncertainty? Because I'd imagine a field like um, medicine in space or, you know, those human factors, it may take off and be, the next big thing but there's uncertainty as to how you get into that and and what that looks like absolutely it's not a clear-cut path like a lot of other medical specialties out there or even a lot of other specialties in other fields medicine medicine in space is quite new and i call it a road less traveled i, I like to use that term a lot um, and dealing with that uncertainty well i I find I'm grappling at the moment with two parts in my head, one being this curiosity side, wanting to explore and, 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 and leave the place in a better, uh, sorry, leave the world in a better place than it, than it was before I came into it. And that, for me, that involves adding to what humans know about our bodies and how they perform in space. I have that sort of, it's always been there, this innate curiosity to learn things and to, to find out. I think, I think that's, that's within all of us as humans. Um, look at any baby under the age of five and they'll be curious about everything. And, and uh, I like to keep that sort of curiosity going. I don't think I'll ever lose it. And the other side of me is uncertain and it is doubtful and it wants to sort of stay comfortable. So I'm battling these two sides between the explorer and the, the diplomat, right? And how I, how I um, allow them to, to, to sort of um, come to terms with each other and work together is I think about people who have gone before me. I really like the phrase that we stand on the shoulders of giants. I like that phrase because we are here because of people who came before us. And they probably had exactly the same battle between the explorer and the diplomat, just as I had. But they achieved things and they paved the way for us to continue to pave the way. They paved the way for us so that we could continue doing that, so that we could continue paving the way for the next generation. And I, I feel it's my duty to do that. And I feel that even if there is some uncertainty and even if there are pitfalls and failures along the way, 
that is all a part of the journey because no journey is meant to be comfortable. If it's comfortable, then you're doing something wrong and you're treading on a path that people have already done before. I'm, I'm not about that. Some people are. So being comfortable is good, but um, I'm all about sort of expanding and building on what we already have. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It makes absolute sense to me. Um, and I, I like what you say about feeling that almost a duty. Tell me more about that feeling of, of a duty or and maybe that ties into the STEM thing, but what, what is it that you feel about that sense of duty? And I don't know, where do you think it comes from? This is getting extremely philosophical and I love it. <laughs> um, I was brought up uh, very carefully and, and I'll say now I'm Vietnamese. My parents came here on a boat and uh, I find their story extremely scary and extremely inspiring. And I, I don't feel that I'm obliged to repay their work back as a person who was brought up in a privileged place such as Australia. But um, I do feel that because I've been brought into this, this wonderful world and this, this lovely city of Adelaide, um, I, have a, I feel like I have a duty to repay that to, to the world that I live in. Um, I have this sense of, I guess I was inspired by like how hard my parents worked um, in order to, to, to get to this point and how hard they, they had me work to, to try and um, to do well at school and to, to be respectful and to have good family values. And so I have a duty to my, to, to, to all sort of, um, all the concentric circles in my life. I have a duty to myself to, to do what I am passionate about to do um, what what makes me happy. You know, this, I've actually got a book somewhere. It's called Ikigai. It's the intersection between four circles. It's what what you love, what you're good at, what pays well, and um, what is going to be beneficial to society. And I want to do that, sort of follow that principle for myself. And I have a duty to my family and my close friends to, to look after them and make sure that they are cared for and be, be there for them. And then I have a duty to my community, both in my city and around the world. And that includes the space community. And I think that's part of what humans have always been wired to do. We're social creatures. And that doesn't mean that we talk all the time, but we also have other people's needs in mind. And I think philosophically, I think that's where the sense of duty comes from. How I express that in the community is through mentoring young students, tutoring students, which I do in this very room in my spare time and sort of contributing to our knowledge as space-faring individuals. That's extremely inspiring. And I think that what you say about the duties and the concentric circles of duties is something that really hits home for me. And I think a lot of people um, of our generation and, you know, often I think we're called the, the next space generation. Yeah. It's this yeah. idea that we have some sort of obligation or duty just by virtue of being here. And I always think of it in terms of in order to get to this point, I have consumed so many resources and, uh, you know, gobbled up so, so much money, if you like, in getting an education and in traveling around learning things and meeting people and doing all of those things that um, to follow the safe path, to follow the path more traveled, if you like, uh, mm -hmm. and go and sit behind a computer and 
do a job that anyone else could do mm-hmm. is to me not a good use of that investment. It's not a good use of what I've achieved or I guess it's like you feel as though you want to do the best you possibly can. And the thing that is the most uniquely you that you're capable of doing, um, that's a positive impact. I think it is actually though a generational challenge. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think it was pretty tough for my parents to kind of (laughs) be like, Oh, what's, what's our daughter doing? Okay. Um, (laughs) Similarly, they were like, okay, well, medicine or law, you choose. (laughs) And I was like, okay, law, I guess, and ended up there. But then I was like, no, not law. I'm going to go and do this random thing to do with space in Antarctica. And they were like, all right. Um, (laughs) But but there is something at the moment socially where people of my parents' generation and a little bit older are looking at our generation and saying, well, why can't you just sit at your desk and have a job and you know, make money, get a mortgage, have a house, live a comfortable life, doing comfortable things. Why is it that you have to reinvent everything all the time and switch jobs all the time and jump around between things and follow all your curiosities down all of these avenues? And I I do understand that it's a generational thing, but I don't know. What what do you think about that? Do you feel that there's some sort of conflict there? Mm. I think there's a few factors that are contributing to that sort of divide. And I'm not saying that all families and all gener- all members of the generation are like this, but um, I could, if I had to try and explain it just, just off the top of my head, I would say that our parents and their parents were coming out of a war torn world. The, the, the 20th century was peppered with multiple wars and two world wars. And during those times being conservative, and um, being austere was was the answer, was the way to survive, was being comfortable was the way that we were able to get through. Having lots of children to make sure that at least one of them would succeed was the way, right? <laughs> Thinking about the Mandalorian now, this is the way. <laughs> um, it, it's not just the war, but it, it perhaps spans a lot, many more centuries than that, where, where things were a little bit um, more difficult and survival and mortality rates were lower. Sorry, mm-hmm. mortality rates were higher and survival rates were lower in families. People just had to be a bit more conservative about their choices in life. And at the turn of the century, um, technology started to creep into our lives a little bit more until we, we can have literal computers in our hands. And that allows us to be connected to the world. And it's about how we use that. I think you and I and a lot of our listeners would use that to inspire ourselves and learn from people on the other side of the world, which we have never been able to do before. We get inspired by people who are making change on the other side of the planet, whereas perhaps our predecessors would never have learnt about those things except perhaps in books from ancient explorers who who trudged halfway across Antarctica. And they were like, yeah, they can do that, but I'm just going to sit here and, and, and try and make a living for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of societies out there that are still aiming for the comfortable and conservative life because that's what they know and that's that's what's beneficial for them. But people like you and I and a lot of our space family on Twitter, I, I think we're driven by this higher this higher duty or sense of duty or this higher um, sense of spirituality even where we 
we get inspired by each other. We have this hive mind and we have a community that extends beyond our geographical locations. And that's what pushes us to expand the human, extend the envelope of knowledge, as you will. That might be a little bit scary for our predecessors, our parents and their parents, but um, eventually, at the end of the day, that's how we make change. We are, I think, at the precipice of human, the, the change in, in, in the human species. With this technology, people are developing larger thumbs because they're using phones more. They, we are probably all becoming myopic like me with glasses because we look at our computer screens way too much and mental health issues are on the rise because we, although we are so connected, we are not connecting meaningfully with people. So I think we, humanity and, and, and society is changing so fast and we have to keep up with that. And the way that we keep up with that is not by um, being comfortable and pursuing jobs that will, will bring home the bacon and full stop. It's, it's going to be adapt, adaptation and being flexible and, and pursuing what, 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 what nourishes ourselves rather than what's going to nourish perhaps the wishes of our parents, you know? Um, I don't know if that answers your question. That's very long-winded. <laughs> I think so. I think I'm in furious agreement. And I think, I know you said it's all gotten very philosophical, but I really like that it has because... Um, <laughs> It's always interesting talking to people like yourself who have taken roads less travelled and made those difficult choices to do that and to understand what it is that's driving that. Because I think for a lot of people who are watching this or listening to this, they will feel inspired by what you say. Um, and some of them might also feel a sense of kinship with you on that, you know, on that way of thinking. Um, I, I would be really interested and hopefully people write in and say, you know, what they think about it. I wanted to ask you for someone who's listening, um, say a young person at school or an older person who's maybe listening to this on the bus or the train, what would be your advice to them about how to go about doing that? You know, if they're a really curious person and they're thinking, maybe I want to forge my own path, maybe I want to enter the space sector, but maybe it's something completely different. Maybe I want to, you know, get really involved in volcanoes, whatever the case may be. Um, what advice would you give to someone? Yeah, the, the road less traveled is a lonely one. I say that to people all the time because it is, but it's certainly an exciting one. So if I were to give some practical advice, I would say the first thing is you need to have a plan. It's all well and good to, to want to me to be the want to be the next astronaut or something, but that there's so many steps that lead up to that. You need to have a plan, and to have that plan, you need to research. You need to research about who's done it before you, because chances are somebody else in the world somewhere has thought of the same pathway as you have, and perhaps has 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 taken a few more steps than you have. And we have the internet at our fingertips, yay. So we can Google it and see if there are people like us. That leads me on to my next piece of advice, which is network, network, network. And it sounds like some new agey sort of entrepreneurship advice that you probably see on a YouTube ad, but networking is so much more than increasing your LinkedIn followers or um, hitting up people at a conference and annoying them while they're enjoying their glass of champagne, right? <laughs> which I feel like I'm always doing. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I've done that one a few times. <laughs> uh, it's to totally, I mean, I'm sure they'll feel humbled inside. 
<laughs> so I keep doing that. But um, it's it's not just about those superficial things that those um, those millionaires tell you to do, even though that's that's also important. But it is about finding your people. At the end of the day, it's about finding your community, your tribe, if I can use that word, and people who think in this in the same way as you, so that you can help each other get to that point because you never know you might be collaborating on a research project with somebody you reached out to a long time ago which i'm actually starting to do now with people who have reached out to me so have a plan and do your research and network as much as you can find your people and that one that will make the road a little bit less isolating because you're inviting people to travel with you to walk with you on that road and it, it makes things a little bit more easy and finally, just be courageous. I said the word courage before, and I use that to underpin my actions in my everyday life. You're not going to be able to do much if you stay comfortable. We've talked about this as well. It all sort of links up, but don't be afraid of taking risks or of taking, or taking calculated risk or perhaps having little failures along the way because they're quite necessary for you to learn and to get to the top. Getting to the top isn't easy in mountain terms or getting to the South Pole, if you want to talk about it like that, because you're an Antarctica researcher, right? It's not easy. Nobody, is, nobody ever said that it's going to be easy. So you need that courage to help your foot step in front of the other foot to get to where you need to go. Um, those would be my three uh, pieces of advice. And I hope that's useful for anyone listening. Thank you so much, V, for taking the time to have this conversation. If people would like to follow you or get in contact or anything else, um, where can they find you? Best place is probably Twitter. Um, I am at Vstronaut, which is astronaut but without the A. It's a V instead, V-I. Um, on there, I've got, I've, you can probably contact me through um, there's a website on my Twitter which you can click on and anybody, regardless of if they have Twitter or not, can contact me through there. So I really welcome any and all messages through that channel. Um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts were on what I said today um, and what Annie and I talked about because I think we reached some, some pretty deep topics. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. But um, no, that's fantastic. So I will put a link in the description to those two links, the Twitter and the contact page. And as always, feel free to send an email to the spacejunkpod at gmail.com or uh, you can find me on Twitter, you know all the stuff um, and, and get in contact if you would like to continue the conversation. Pete, thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. You've been listening to the Space Junk Podcast. To find out more about V, follow her on social media where, where she is Vistronaut. You can also follow me by searching at Annie Hanma or send us an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com.